Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. Welcome, everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm one of the pastors here. My pronouns are she, her. We're really glad you're all here tonight. Tonight, we're going to continue our walk through the Gospel of John. I'm going to skip forward from the wedding feast at Cana, where Paula left us last Sunday, into the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, where we're gonna focus on Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman at a well, which Heather Lynn so beautifully just read to you. This is the story of a woman who sasses Jesus. It is a woman who talks back to our Lord and Savior, and in doing so, opens his ministry beyond the people of Israel. So before I dive in, I want to define sass. Sass can be defined as mouthing off, talk back, attitude. It's often used to describe a woman not backing down from a man in response to a real or perceived injustice. Sass is a legitimate contextual language of resistance. Sass is refusing to be silenced or dismissed as less than. It's a word that's often applied to strong women, which we have an abundance of here at Let's Practice Envision Community Church. (laughs) I did it right. (laughs) But where is Jesus before he meets this sassy lady? He's on the move from Judea to Galilee, just passing through Samaria. Jesus is on the move because he's likely to be persecuted in Judea. Outrage was growing among the Pharisees against his teachings in the synagogues there. In fact, when John says that Jesus left Judea, the word that he uses for left means that Jesus forsook Judea. He was walking away with intent from a controversy that was not worth his time. He had other people to teach, other people to reach. And he chose the most direct route to Galilee, traveling through Samaria, or what would have been about a two and a half day walk. Most Jews at the time, however, would not have chosen that route. They would have chosen to walk nearly twice the distance just to avoid interacting with Samaritans. So Jesus shows that by taking this route, he is a little more open-minded than some of his faith community was at the time. But still, it wasn't like he was planning to stop and teach in Samaria. He was just passing through most direct route to where he wanted to go. Jesus tells us in his own words in the Gospel of Matthew 15, 24, spoken to another sassy lady that I would love to preach to you all about someday, that I was only sent to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. In other words, up to this point in Jesus's ministry, he was only teaching Jewish people. But we know that the human need and desire for the wholeness of God's love transcends borders, right? It transcends race, ethnicity, class, gender, sexuality, and that's where our sassy lady comes in. Scripture says that Jesus was tired from a long walk and was sitting alone at a well. But this wasn't any old well. It was what was known as Jacob's well at the foot of Mount Gerizim. Abraham once lived right there. This is the area where God first appeared to Abraham in Genesis 17:8, promising to give his descendants the entire land of Canaan. Flash forward two generations to Abraham's God grandson, Jacob, the patriarch of the Israelites, and he arrives right here where this well is to be, just after reconciling with his brother Esau, just after wrestling with God and being renamed Israel. He safely settles here and he buys a plot of land and he builds this well where Jesus now sits. But this is also where Israel's daughter Dinah was raped by the Canaan chief's son and where his sons slaughter all of the Canaan chief's people, causing Israel and his sons to have to pick up and move again. Flash forward some more, and this is also the spot where the nation of Israel, once united, became divided into a northern and southern kingdom about a thousand years before Jesus sits down at this well. At the risk of boring you with more historical significance of this well, I'm just going to summarize it by saying Jesus didn't pick any old well to sit by. He picked a site that had a long history of conflict between the tribes of Israel and between Israel and foreigners. So Jesus' disciples leave him to rest at the well while they go in search of food. The reality of this tired, fatigued Jesus is also important because this story is a witness to the reality of his humanity. John's gospel is different from the three synoptic gospels in a couple of ways. One, Jesus repeatedly and unabashedly claims his identity as the Son of God. And two, the Gospel of John also emphasizes Jesus' humanity more than the other three Gospels. The Gospel of John alone records him making clay with his own spit, having friends, including a beloved best friend, weeping over the loss of a friend, his thirst upon the cross, the blood that issued from his wounded side, the obvious physical reality of his risen body, including his wounds, so that his friends and disciples would know that the one that was in front of them was also the same as the one who was slain, and that he would bear forever on his now holy body the marks of a wounded humanity. So here we find this human, weary Jesus resting by a well that overflows with a history of conflict and separation for his people. And then a Samaritan woman comes to the well to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Give me a drink was, by the way, a totally normal request of a traveler meeting a local at a well. What was unusual about it was that the woman had come to draw water alone and not at the typical time of day for this chore. We and Jesus can glean a little bit about her social standing from this. 
women of higher social standing were not the ones to fetch well water. So we can gather that she holds a fairly low position in her family. Water was also usually gathered in groups of women. And she comes both alone and at a time of day when she knows that the other women don't routinely come, which tells us that she was probably a bit of a social outcast. So Jesus would have surmised all of this before he asked her for a drink. We might presume he wanted to confer a blessing on this lonely, low-positioned woman by putting her in a position to do him a kindness. Perhaps he recognized in her a thirsty soul, dimly longing for a better existence. And while Jesus was just passing by this well on this hot day, this hot walk to this well was this woman's day-to-day reality. When Jesus asked her for a drink, we must ask ourselves, was he really thirsty or was he thirsting to invite her into the knowledge of her belonging to God? Probably both. But she didn't know who Jesus was. She just saw a tired, dusty, sweaty Jewish man asking her to do more work. And so when Jesus asks her for a drink, she sasses him a little, saying basically, "Um, you, sir, are Jewish. Why are you asking me for a drink? Remember, sass is a legitimate contextual language of resistance. You see, Jewish people did not have anything to do with Samaritans. Why? Well, the Samaritans were of mixed race and mixed religion, part Jewish and part Assyrian. It was common for Jews to refer to Samaritans as half-breeds or mutts. Samaritans worshipped the God of Israel, but they also worshipped five other Assyrian gods. They disagreed with the Jews about where God's people should worship him. Jews worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim, right above the well that forms the setting for this story. Both claimed that their place of worship was the sole dwelling place of the Lord. That's a very simplified explanation of the contention between them, but it went back generations. This well is in the area where the unified nation of Israel split into the northern and southern kingdoms. Israel was divided by conflict and then separated. Then Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom first, where this well exists. Many of the people of Israel were led off to Assyria as captives, but some remained in the land and intermarried with the foreigners who occupied it in order to assimilate and survive. And these became what are known as the Samaritans. Conflict, separation, exile, and oppression, in reaction to which their expression of faith in the God of Israel shifted, along with their culture. And then about 135 years later, Babylon laid siege to the southern kingdom and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple with it. And the rich, educated, and powerful Jewish families of Jerusalem were taken captive and brought into captivity in Babylon by their oppressors. Again, conflict, separation, oppression, and exile, in reaction to which their Jewish culture and faith also shifted to survive. Born out of their longing to return to Jerusalem, they formed an identity based on their status as exiled outsiders. To protect their Israelite identity while they were in exile, they shunned cultural assimilation and intermarriage with the Babylonians. This was their survival tactic. And when the Jews of the Babylonian exile were finally able to return to Jerusalem some 70 years later, 
They resented these Samaritans who had stayed and assimilated. And the Samaritans resented the judgment over how they had survived and been able to stay in the land. So when Jesus meets this woman at the well, the Samaritans were truly considered half Jewish and half Gentile. And there was deep hatred between them and the Jews. So there was this long, hard history in this woman's reply to Jesus, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan woman? Basically, this woman is resisting, saying, your people call me a half-breed. Your people call me a mutt. They hold me out of outside of the belonging to God. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus, in one of his more tired moments in the gospel, answers, basically, do you know who I am? If you had asked me for water, I would have given you living water. And as I read it, the Samaritan woman doubles down on the sass, saying to Jesus, uh, look, last time I checked, you were the one asking me for a drink. You don't seem to have a rope. You don't seem to have a bucket. You don't seem to have a cup. What you seem to be is tired and thirsty and by yourself. Where are you going to get this living water that you're going on about? And if you can get this living water, why are you bothering me to get you a drink? And Jesus chooses not to explain himself. At this point, he shifts to being almost playful in his hopes of reaching her heart. Please take note and heart, ladies. Jesus appears to enjoy a sassy woman. He goes on to say that everyone who drinks his water will never thirst again. And you can almost picture her eye roll at this point. Your magic water sounds great, sir. Why don't you get me some? Because I sure am tired of having to walk all the way here to draw water every day. And Jesus says, okay, go get your husband. And she hesitates and replies, um, I don't have one of those. A lot of commentary on this verse likes to imply that Jesus brings up her lack of a husband to make her face an area of her life where she needed to repent, but I don't agree with that. First of all, women didn't want to be unmarried in this time and place. I preached on this before. Marriage in that time was a means for provision and protection. Her relationship status was not likely of her choosing. I prefer the idea that in asking her to get her husband, Jesus was offering her belonging to God, but he also knew that that gift wasn't going to be complete unless it was shared with the people whom she served and the people with whom she shared her life. Because if her people continued to thirst, even if she was made whole, her hard work to quench their thirst would continue. I prefer to read this as Jesus extending a wider invitation to his well of grace. Now at this point, Jesus really gets all up in her business. As I have found Jesus is 100% want to do. He points out that he knows she isn't married. In fact, he knows she's been married five times, and he knows the man she has now is not her husband. One fascinating interpretation of Jesus bringing up her five husbands is that he was referencing the five gods that the Assyrians had brought into Samaria. Remember, the Samaritans were a people whose religious practices included the worship of the God of Israel and other foreign gods, five of them to be exact. Jesus, maybe, was referencing that long, hard history of the Samaritans and these five other gods because they were what the Samaritans were despised for. 
And he wanted to include these people in the message of God's grace and love. After this point, after Jesus recounts her long romantic history, we see her tone shift. She is like, okay, sir, you are a prophet. And what I continue to love about this woman is that in realizing this dusty traveler is a prophet, she doesn't go all silent and reverential. Instead, she begins to ask questions. This is not how most people would react to someone that they've just realized is a prophet, especially a Samaritan realizing someone is a prophet. You see, the Samaritans followed only the five books of Moses. Just like the Jewish people, they followed Torah law and they believed in a Messiah to come. But unlike the Jewish people, they did not follow the historical or prophetical books on which the Jewish people had built up an expectation that the Messiah would be a king of kings. The Samaritans were expecting a Messiah, but one in the form of a prophet, like Moses. So this woman knew she was speaking to a prophet, yet she continues to speak to him as an equal. She ignores their differences in standing, and she jumps right into a debate about their divergent religious beliefs. Jesus tells the woman that there will be a time when the true believers of God will worship the Father not on mountaintops or in temples, referring to the differences of where the Samaritans and the Jews worshiped the God of Israel, but instead through the Holy Spirit living inside them. I also love that the woman appears to lose the thread of the conversation a little bit here because I know how that feels. My current theology professors are really brilliant and kind humans. And I've often asked a question out of honest curiosity and suddenly found myself in a conversation with a brilliant human who is spouting all of these beautiful complex things that I want to understand, but I'm a little bit confused and I'm in over my head. So I scramble to find some common ground to reestablish the conversation, just like the woman scrambles to find some common ground with Jesus. She cuts to the point, saying, look, you and I both know a Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll tell us all the things. Like, look, you and me, we can agree to disagree, but we both know our guy is coming, and when he comes, we'll both be on the same team. She's been waiting for the Messiah all this time and speaking with Jesus so freely, having no idea that the one sent to tell her all the things is him. And Jesus is like, yeah, the Messiah, that's me. And he loves her in her imperfect understanding. He also knows the healing and freeing power of truth, even when we don't have complete understanding. He's not deterred by his weariness or by his social standing in the confines of the day of talking to a woman alone in an effort to pour the truth of God's love into her heart. At this point, the disciples return. And as they often are, they are focused on all the wrong things. They are shocked that he has been speaking alone to a woman. They are worried that he hasn't eaten anything. They are fussing over him as this sip of truth that Jesus has poured into this woman's heart begins to overflow. And the woman runs off, leaving her water pot behind her to spread the good news to her fellow Samaritans that Jesus is the Messiah and he is here among them. And it's worth noting that the word used here for water pot, hydria, was the same word used for the jars in which Jesus changed water into fine wine at the wedding feast of Cana. And it's also worth noting that this word is not used 
anywhere else in the Bible but in these two stories. If you recall from Paula's sermon last week, Jesus used this word to indicate that the jars were the ones in which Jewish people ritually purified themselves before entering a home. In Jewish culture, these vessels were, were for ritual purification, and they were exclusionary. Certain people were not allowed to use them. Now, in Samaritan culture, it might just have been a water pot. But I think it's interesting that this word is what's used to describe what Jesus sees her set down. What he sees her set down is his people's vessel of purification and exclusion and run off to offer the good news to her people who were seen as impure and excluded from God's blessing by Jesus's people. And she runs into the town and she tells many Samaritans that Jesus is the Messiah and they believe her. Verse 30 says that the men she told immediately went out of the city and were coming on their way to Jesus. She hasn't even made it back to the well, but the first men that she has told are also already crossing the fields that lay between the city and Jacob's well. They believe her and they rush to hear him speak. They rush to come and believe in their belonging to God. This was a land full of people that Jesus had intended to just pass through, to have nothing to do with, as was the cultural norm at the time. And this sass-filled exchange by a woman with no social standing changed everything. It's in this story that we first see the gospel of Jesus go beyond the Jewish people to the Samaritans, and that is really big. Because all of you here in this room, whose 23andMe reports do not include Jewish ancestry, can mark this moment as the expansion of the gospel to have eventually reached you. Sass very often does not lead to victory over exclusion in an exchange like this one did. But even when victory is unlikely to be ours, there is intrinsic value in resistance to exclusivity and oppression. The woman at the well knew this, and we should too. We are called to struggle sometimes, not because it's going to change things for us, but because it keeps us true to ourselves. Sass is the guard at the door of your heart that refuses to admit those who would hold you down. This woman refuses to ask her questions from the posture of a subservient woman to a Jewish man, and in doing so, her questions hold and gain power. It's her words and her courage to speak above and against her societal station that first expand the gospel beyond the people of Israel to include the redemption of all people. That's how God used her sass. So I'm gonna close by asking you to put yourself in the place of that Samaritan woman. Her exposed, alone, repeated walk to that well just to survive. The fear she must have lived with until she didn't care to live with it any longer. A woman without much to lose. For unjust systems to change, sometimes we have to show up as equal where no one else is gonna treat us that way. Sometimes in threatening our own survival, often nothing gets better for us. Sometimes it's just a refusal to be eroded by injustice. But maybe, just maybe, our resistance creates something better for whoever comes after us. So for our closing prayer, I'm gonna read you a couple of verses from Audre Lorde's poet, poem, A Litany for Survival, 
about the courage that's inherent to SAS in resistance and in change making. Will you pray with me? When our stomachs are full, we are afraid of indigestion. When our stomachs are empty, we are afraid we may never eat again. When we are loved, we are afraid that love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid that love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it's better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.